just to start, and before we start getting some folks up here, I have a few questions I would love to pick your brain on. As far as the difficulty of writing the book, you've written some great biographies, some great pieces over the years. What was the sort of the difficulty level or the amount of effort that went into putting this thing together over the last two years and covering Elon versus everybody else? Did anything stick out from a process perspective as a writer that you would like to talk about? Well, it was more exciting than any ride I've ever been on. And of course, I began ride a couple of years, two and a half years ago, just when he had become the person of the year at time and Tesla told a million, about a million cars and rockets were being blasted off and landed and reused. And he had sent more mass into orbit than everybody else combined. And I'm thinking this guy is really on a roll. It's going to be a very great book or focus book on batteries and cars and technology and rockets. And then as you probably, if you've gotten to that part of the book, ask him about, can you sit back and savor some of the success? And he's like, no, I got to push my chips back on the table. And that's when he was buying Twitter. And so that made this an even more exciting ride. One of the things I learned about is that he loves drama. He loves storm. And if things are calm, he's going to either call a surge in which excitement happens, or he's going to push chips back on the table and take more risks and excitement guaranteed. And for me as a writer, I like excitement as well, but maybe I don't relish it quite as much as Elon does. And so I sometimes had white knuckles as I was holding onto my seat and we were riding through all of these storms. Was well, that something that caught you by surprise before uh, you got to be close to him? Or did you have a, a suspicion that's the kind of person he was? Oh, I always knew that he was an all-in person, a hardcore person. And I also knew that he was a risk taker. And I think we've become a society with a lot more regulators than risk takers. And that's why I wanted to write this book. I also knew that he liked drama. I mean, he likes amusement. And so I knew I was not going to be bored. Yeah, for sure. Could you give us some insight into what sort of reception the book is getting thus far? From my standpoint, I know I sent you that sort of like review sort of thing that I put together from the book and, and sort of my takeaway. I thought it was such an interesting highlight in somebody that loves to live in the extremes. And you've talked about this a little bit through your media appearances. It's like, can you have one without the other? Can you have this crazy effort? without some of the, you know, flying close to the sun is going to get you burned from time to time, right? What kind of reception are you getting from readers? I would love to hear a little bit if you've heard anything from folks. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I love the reception. And obviously, he's controversial. And so there's been people who like the book, people who don't like the book, or people who are sort of reviewing Elon Musk and not reviewing the book because they either like him or don't like him. And that's fine. I've always, I've thought every piece of reaction to it has been interesting to me. And the book is obviously selling very well, you know, extraordinarily well. But as for the, you know, nowadays there's like a thousand reviews out there. I remember my wife asking me when I did a book many years ago, we were driving around the West the day the book came out and we had to try to find a newsstand or a news vendor where you could find the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Times, you know, three big reviews. 
nowadays there's a thousand reviews within a day and especially in open media like x you know or spaces everybody gets to give a take and i've been very pleased with the fact that people have been interested in the book that's awesome yeah that's i'm not surprised to hear that i mean from, from my standpoint i was as i was reading through the book i read it in in two days i i tried my best to sit down and just run through it because i've been so interested in and sort of his story arc and all the uh, businesses he's built in it, it was so tough to put the book down. And I wonder how much, you know, how much of it was the writing style of the way you wrote the book just made it so hard to put it down because it was just one thing after another. How much of that was aided by the fact that Elon seems to have like 10 lives, that he's, it's just, it's, his life seems to be so stuffed with things. That it's almost like, oh, here's a crazy thing. And then the next chapter is like, oh, here's another crazy thing. Yeah, and right. Here's... Well, I tried to write it almost as if you're writing alongside in this extraordinary tale. And so they're very short chapters that I hope are driven by stories and narrative. And here's the main thing. It's been both the reason people like the book and some criticize it is I just tell you the story. Most media types these days want to impose an opinion on you. They want to have a hot take right away. I'm saying, man, okay, we're ripping out the servers in Sacramento. Here's the story. Or we're, you know, dealing with a valve in the Raptor engine, and here's how he's dealing with it. And I want to do fast-paced narratives that let you be the judge because it's like being with Musk. His attention is deeply focused on one thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. And so I want you to feel like it's a pretty exciting ride as opposed to a whole lot of pontificating by me. You make the judgments after you read all the stories. Yeah, I love that. Did you guys form a friendship, would you say, after you shadowed him for two years or is it more of an acquaintance sort of business relationship? I was writing his biography. I didn't, you know, it wasn't my job to become his late night party pal. But we, like talked, <laughs> yeah, we talked late at night or texted when he had something to say, but I, he treated me with great respect and openness. And I tried to be respectful and open myself, but the goal wasn't to say, invite me, you know, to go to parties late at night with you. I was not trying to be his super pal, just trying to be super correct in telling you the tale and being the representative of the reader and even of, you know, first draft of history of here's the story. And so I had to keep that in mind. It wasn't like I had in mind, how can I, you know, become a, a pal or something. I don't think he needs more pals. He needed somebody to chronicle the history of what he was doing. That, that makes perfect sense. Hans, I'll throw it over to you for whatever you have on your end. If you do want to come up and ask questions, make sure you do requests. We'll bring up folks as the space goes along. Walter's, you know, he's going to be around for us to answer as many questions as we can get him to answer. But yeah, go ahead, Hans. Go for it. Yeah, thanks, Farzad. And yeah, awesome book, Walter. I loved it. I read it cover to cover already. And I've been very interested in Elon for a long time. I've read quite a number of things, and this is by far the most in-depth look into the inner workings of Elon's mind. And like you were saying, I love the way that you just presented serial stories, you know, kind of little chronological vignettes over time to show us the development of his personality, his decision-making matrices. 
and just the way he handles problems. I think it was an incredible way to to handle the biography, and I, it was a great read. One of my questions related to so on Lex's podcast, you talked about the deep empathy that Elon has for human consciousness and how a lot of times that can actually override the empathy that he might have for an individual that's sitting right in front of him. And so how do you think that deep-seated sense of awe and love for the human consciousness was installed in Elon originally? And uh, where does his dread for the fragility of human consciousness come from? And how is he so viscerally connected to both of those things at the same time? Well, I think he's right about the fragile candle of human consciousness. You know, we don't know that anywhere in this universe there's anything like consciousness. And one reason we don't know is because if there ever was or is such consciousness, they've not become multiplanetary enough to survive whatever may happen or to explore the universe. And at first, when he talked about the need to protect the flickering flame of human consciousness, I thought he might be doing that as a pep talk to his SpaceX team or as a, you know, the type of thing you'd say on podcasts. The more I heard him say it, the more I realized that was a deep drive that he had, along with making sure that we have sustainable energy on this planet. When you read the book, you'll see he was somewhat lonely as a child, somewhat picked on, and he spent a lot of time reading. He read science fiction. He read comic books in the corner of the bookstore. And I think he developed, while other, some of us are trying to figure out our worldview, he was figuring out a cosmic view. And everything he's done from, you know, starting, with, I mean, not everything, but with his pushing all his chips back on the table to start SpaceX with the goal of getting humanity to Mars has been because of these epic quests. Other people I've written about, they're driven by money. If you're driven by money, you're not gonna start a pocket company. You're not gonna even start an electric vehicle company, you know, or for that matter, by Twitter. So I think he's driven by more cosmic passions. He always finds a way to then have practical means of getting to those passions, like let's launch satellites, let's create Starlink, Let's sell a roadster at a high price so that we could eventually have a million cars a year being sold. Hans, did you have other things you want to? Yeah, I have. I was trying to think if there's a good follow up question on that, but maybe one of the next ones could be drilling into demon mode and the way that you've witnessed that kind of coldness set in and that personality shift overtake him. Did you have a sense for what triggered? those instances? Is that something that is really a self-defense mechanism? Or is that more something that gets triggered when he actually feels like that the future of the flourishing of human consciousness is somehow in danger based on either act like active things that people are doing or even just complacency? Well, let, you know, let's make clear that all of us, or at least me and probably most of you, are getting to dark moods at times. We get triggered. We get either depressed or we get seething. I think as with anything with Elon Musk, it's probably one order of magnitude greater than most of us go through. 
whether it be the epic things he does or the moods that he has. I think his father also had those type of mood swings where he would at one point be jovial and funny. And then this is in the early chapters of the book and at other times be cold and berating and scarring. I think what generally might set Elon off is when somebody's not listening or somebody says something can't be done or somebody may challenge him but not have fact. And so many times he, you know, stunned me by knowing 10 times more facts than the expert or the analyst on his team who was telling him that something was going to be a problem. And so I could often see in a meeting or walking along the factory floor, which happens so often, whether it's the beautiful Gigafactory in Texas or in Fremont, something would be happening bad on the line and somebody would not know even how to open up the console and get it working. And Musk would just say, I'm going to stay here until we get this console open. And then he would rewrite the code or he would speed things up. So I think if you don't quite know what you're doing and you're confident and wrong, I don't think he minds it when people are wrong. I think he minds it when they're confident and wrong. That makes a lot of sense. I think because I was sort of reading the book, it's, it's, that was one of the things that really came clear is that he, he almost has very low tolerance for folks in that respect, you know, and if I think back to my jobs that I've had in the past, I mean, you know, certain folks will have you know, either higher tolerance or they don't really, they take you for your word because they may not have that 10x knowledge library in their head. But I do wonder, like, maybe this is like a personal opinion category, you, you're free to say it or not, but do you think if Elon was slightly softer around the edges, do you think he would get, do you think he would be more effective or do you think he's just, his way is his way and it's, that's why he's so effective. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, that's what the book is about. And in the end, I asked that question. I'm not sure I answer it fully because I want the reader to think about it, which is Antonio Gracias, one of his close friends saying, I wish we could have an impulse control button. So that when he tried to, you know, send out a, a post or he tried, was about to do something, there'd be a way to soften the edges a bit, let's say, or hold it off. And I kind of, yes, that would be sweet. But what a restrained must accomplish as much as a musk unbound is a key to his success. The fact that he's intuitive and impulsive and sometimes shoots off rockets and leaves debris in his way. And, you know, obviously, even he would say that he wished he didn't stab himself in the thigh or shoot himself in the foot quite as often. But I think that if he were much more polite and polished, as you, know, you quoted the book and a lot of the people who helped me understand him in the book say, if he had a lot more empathy for the people right in front of him, maybe that means he would care. It was almost egotistical. He would care too much that they were feeling love for him or something, as opposed to caring about the overall enterprise and the overall mission. So you've put your finger on the theme of the book. And yes, if you could recreate the simulation and be the overlord of the simulation, would you create a character who could do everything he has done, which is an astonishing amount, but also was softer on the edges and sweeter to the people in front of him. 
well, that would be a pleasant simulation, but I'm not sure that it would fit into the rules of the game. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I'm going to start bringing up some uh, folks that have requested to get some questions in here to make sure uh, that we get uh, the folks represented on the board. If you do want to ask a question for uh, to Walter, make sure you hit that request button. Let me ask a quick question. And then Hans, if you have another one, we'll go with you. And then we'll start with the round with the panel. Now that you've been sort of next to his side for the last couple of years and have gotten really close exposure to the type of person he is, what makes him tick? I would love to sort of get your opinion on this. For those of us that have been following the, the sort of his businesses, his persona in the media for the better part of a decade, at least I'll speak for myself. I feel like the, the mainstream media at very often, I feel like unfairly covers him and his businesses. And again, if you don't want to sort of give, uh, provide personal opinion, it's completely up to you here. But do you feel that after being close to him and sort of seeing what was written about him and his businesses, do you feel like there might be a negative skew or do you think that's just, it's fairly covered and it's just what media is, if you have any thoughts there? Well, let me first cop a plea that if you're defining the mainstream media, you know, I'm a, I'm a avatar of that. I'm a, you know, an example of that. I worked at Time Magazine. I worked at CNN. I worked at the Times Picayune in New Orleans. I'm about as mainstream as you get. And I try to be open-minded and be old-fashioned in a way as a journalist, which is it's not about me having a knee-jerk opinion. It's about me trying to get the story right and trying to give you the narrative and allowing you to form an opinion based on the actual stories. I think nowadays, not just the mainstream media, I'm not blaming my old colleagues at places like that. I think all over, there's now more of a tendency to give a hot take, to have a really sharp opinion, to be controversial and opinionated than there is to say, well, this is complicated. Let me try to get more facts and try to get a narrative that is true. And I think that's part of our digital age, our cable TV age, our talk radio age. And it's disappointing to me that so much journalism and so much commentary has been so opinionated. And one of the criticisms of my book is that I'm not opinionated enough. I just had access to Musk and I try to tell the stories right. I think that's a fine criticism. Everybody can, you know, throw in their own medal and think they're important. But I think there's a problem in media today that it's based too much on shouting, talking heads on cable, on talk radio, and on social media. I think if that's your primary criticism, I think that's a trophy. I sometimes I said to Cara Swisher, who's like reaming me out about it on her podcast, I said, I cop a play, I cop a play, I let the reader decide. I think, I think that's fantastic. Let's go to Hans, if you have anything on your end, and then we'll start going with the round table. We'll go to Penny. Yeah, so I have a, this one will be a little bit more of a technical question. Another one that came up in Lex's podcast was you mentioned the Leet engine, and then I love the chapter on that. I think there's a little <laughs> bit of confusion within the SpaceX community. Is that what became Raptor 2.0, or is that going to be a successor that we might see again, you know, reappear in the future? I think the latter, and I'm so glad you read that. I mean, I get all these questions about, yeah, I don't know, more tabloidy things. And to me, the notion of him being upset with a spaghetti bush-like thing that was the Raptor 1.0 with all the wires all over the place shows his 
intuitive feel for walking an assembly line or looking at manufacturing and knowing what needs to be done. And so he orders this radical simplification that he says, I don't even want it named after another falcon or another bird. I don't want it to be raptor or merlin or kestrel or whatever. And he calls it leet. And I'm going to leave it to you right now to break back in and tell the listeners what leet is, because it's actually, I, I now forget it's in the book, but it's, it sounds like L E, but tell them what it is. So the actual number is 1337, which people read as leet. And, you know, even though I'm a millennial, I know that's probably connected to a meme, but I'm not. Actually, I don't the the have to remember the meme, but yeah, it's 1337, which is an internet meme, which you can pronounce as leet because if you look at the numerals, it kind of looks that way. And that was going to be a successor engine to the Raptor. And he went really hardcore all in on Ford, like Jake McKenzie, this guy he had just was promoting to help do it. He said, don't even worry about fixing Raptor. Let's get the perfect next engine. And it was... People say he doesn't get pushed back or he doesn't change his mind. No, he gets pushed back a lot. And so they were working on it. But they said, if we're really going to get Starship launched, we got to actually deal with the engine we have. We have to make Raptor better. We can't just design the engine of the way future. And he said, yeah, but by aiming at the way future, and this is one of the secrets of his success, whenever the pressure gets bad, He'll say, okay, what are people going to wear on Mars? Or he'll look to the way future. And so he's looking to the future with the LEAT engine. And they come up with all sorts of amazing new things you do if you design one for scratch. But then they convince him, we got to get the Raptor fixed up right as well. And he convinces himself too. I mean, he's listening, he's processing all this input. And then they go back to doing a what is now Raptor 2.0. To cut to the chase, the answer is no. Raptor 2.0 is not what he envisioned for Leet, and I assume someday they will get to the successor engine. But at the moment, that was just a detour for a couple of months that cleared their mind and got them to thinking of what could be, and then that helped them create Raptor 2.0. And so you think that significantly contributed to the improvements that we saw in Raptor 2.0 as well? You know, I asked Jake McKenzie that, and I asked some Bill Riley and some of the people. They said, yeah, it, it really helped us see what was possible. But I don't think, and, you know, somebody, maybe somebody listening could tell me I'm wrong. I don't think there were very specifically a lot of, you know, details from Leet that then got applied into Raptor 2.0. But it was a fresh look and a fresh way of thinking. So it helped them simplify radically some of the complexities of Raptor 1.0. That's awesome insight. By the way, Elite stands for Elite, and now I feel like a huge nerd knowing that. So that's that. All right, let's go to Penny, and then we'll do Gregor. I was totally going to say the same thing. It was an old hacker meme. It meant, yeah, yeah, you're elite on the internet. And yeah, I definitely also embarrassed to be around during that time and participating. But Walter, my question was about the timing of the book, actually. Epic biographies like this are usually either after someone has passed or at least they're past their prime. It feels to me like Elon has a ton ahead of him still, 
And I'm curious, have you talked to him at all about like a volume two? Is there going to be another Walter Elon biography? Well, I think you're ahead of your skis there. I think there'll be other biographies someday, and I'm not sure how it will be done. But I decided to do the book after he, you know, we talked about the Starship launch, and you'll see at the end of the book the change to FSD-12 on on full self-driving to be a human imitation machine learning version, and then the start of XAI, his AI company. I thought then we saw the trajectory, and whatever Elon Musk does five or 10 years from now, I think the things in his personality and his mode of operating that you see in the book will be the same. It'll help not only explain all the things he's done, but you'll understand whatever he does next. Uh, I've written books in the past, especially on Jennifer Doudna, who did the CRISPR gene editing about people who were still around. But you're right. In this case, I had to say, we're going to end the book, and I think you'll be able to get this guy. And you'll also see where he's heading with real-world AI, not just large language model generative AI, with Starship, and with a global car for Tesla. And you'll see how he got his mind to those places. If he does anything wild, uh, like buy another Twitter, uh, you'll also understand the impulsiveness. Let's go Gregor Truck and then Anwar Beck. Hey, Walter. Yeah, man. I love the Cybertruck chapter. I'm a Cybertruck absolute super nerd, super fan. It's kind of my whole thing here on Twitter. And I was curious if I could ask basically a two-part question on that. One of the cool parts with that chapter was when you mentioned that Elon came in for the Friday meeting, the weekly design center meeting, and he saw the iteration of Cybertruck that we've all come to know and see that is now about to go on sale. Were you physically there when that was unveiled to Elon? I was not at the meeting where it was unveiled, although I have been in Franz's room design room with Elon when they unveil it, you know, at different times when he shows mm -hmm. off each new iteration. And, you know, I do have very detailed source notes in the book so that clearly things that happened in 2017, 2018, mm -hmm. I'm not there, but I tell Franz or others or Elon, you know, please just describe that scene. And I try to get three or four people describing it to me. So yes, I've been around him, especially when he's figuring out the properties of stainless steel and how that's liberating when it comes to creating an exoskeleton for the Cybertruck and of course for Starship and joking about, I love stainless steel so much, maybe we should get a hotel room together. And I think that materials, science, intuitive field he has when they're saying, no, doing this out of stainless steel is not going to work, said, no, it's going to liberate the design as well. It's going to let the future look like the future. And of course, I've been with him some with his beautiful son, Saxon, who, as you probably know, is autistic, but wise and autistic and wise, I should say. And he was the one who said, dad, why doesn't the future look like the future? I love it. So then the other end of my question was... I'm, as you've been there by your own admission as well for different weekly meetings at that design center, did you see the other iteration of Cybertruck that was, you could call it version 1.0, I guess, that they made? 
that was the alternative design or rather did you i guess second part of that and i'll i'm gonna this will be it i promise <laughs> but did you see, the one that made the headlines this week was the design engineers started working on a secondary model altogether that we've never seen and probably never will but really did you see version 1.0 that they had next to Cybertruck that Elon walked in and said, I love it. This is it. That's the truck. Oh, yeah. I saw, and you can still see, or Hans, I bet you, Franz has shown me the pictures and the bulletin board and the whiteboards and the pinup board. And even if you watch CBS Sunday morning, I was able to convince both Elon and his people and Franz to let the film crew be in the design studio. I think in front of a, a mock-up of a truck, as well as the clay models of the cyber trucks, as well as the semi. I don't think that was shown on the air, but no. I, I remember seeing quite a few of the clay models. And then of course, the pictures of the various versions of the cyber truck. Got it. Well, I'll keep it short. I'm sure everybody else has questions. Walter, you're an incredible writer. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, me. I had an incredible subject. I think yes. I just, my talent <laughs> yeah. was getting out of the way of the story, not doing much to the story. Well, you did a great job. Thank you so much, Walter. Thank you. All right. Let's do, thank you, Greg. Uh, let's do Anwar Beck and then let's go to Meili. Thanks, Farzad and Hans for hosting. This is Anwar Beck. Walter, thank you so much. My wife and I are massive fan of yours. We went to your book signing for the Einstein book in Houston, and you and I briefly met in, at the proper in Austin about a year ago. I run the Tesla Owners Club here in Austin. I've got a two-part question as well. The main question is this kind of a continuation of Farzad's question. Not only I feel like misrepresentation of Elon in mainstream media, but all the time, I feel like I kind of have to fight for his reputation. You know, I've talked to many times and it's always shocking to me when people are like, I hate Elon Musk. That's why I don't own a Tesla. Have you spending a couple of years with Elon? You know, is it classism? Even my own younger brother, who's a very smart guy, is just like not a fan of Elon's. And people joke that if Elon Musk had a fan club, that I'd be president. I mean, I've been following him and the company for over a decade, started a YouTube channel. I mean, anything I could do is basically like these owners club. I joke to people is like, you know, when your wife and, and your partner is tired of hearing about Tesla, it's like therapy to go talk to other people about how cool Elon is and everything that he's working on. Well, you know, I think you're right that I keep running into people who are either fans or fans of Musk. And he's very polarizing. And, you know, it's interesting. I live in New Orleans and most people in Louisiana and New Orleans, they totally get Elon Musk and they love mm -hmm. him. But I also spend time in New York City. I have a little, we have a little apartment here. And sometimes when I'm in the rarefied media elite zip codes of New York and other places, you know, I feel a great antipathy towards him. And I think Musk would laugh about that because if he wanted to be less controversial, he could, if he wanted not to do political tweets, you know, but yeah, I do not think that there's anybody much more polarizing as a private citizen. I mean, maybe, you know, some of our politicians are that way. But yep, everybody's got an opinion on Musk, which made it fun to write this book because I wanted to say, all right, you may think what you know, you may already think you know what you feel about Musk, but I'm going to tell you a whole lot of stories and now you tell me what you feel. Right. We even, in back in 2020, we were going to do this big celebration celebrating Elon on 420. 
and COVID happened. So me and my friends, we actually started this campaign online called Elon Musk Day. It was one of those, like, I don't know. I just had this urge. I was like, people like Elon, we don't appreciate and celebrate until they die. You know what I mean? Like these Yeah, but I people. think we should all have a more complex view of almost anybody. Okay. And I appreciate what you do because I've followed you. But also, you know, I appreciate the ability to hear criticism too. And I've noticed that with the book. People have given very smart, balanced criticisms of both Busk and the book. Got it. My last question has to do with, uh, you see in the news, people talk about Elon's crazy work ethic, something about he plans his days, five minute increments. I think he's got like a pain tolerance, like no human. Can you speak to, it seems like you spent a lot of time with him. Like, is he just a robot? Like, I don't understand. It seems like he's definitely not programmed every five minutes because he focuses and he'll focus for an hour. And then if he hasn't finished something, He'll keep focusing and things will have to be delayed. And he doesn't multitask. I once said he multitasks. That's not quite right. He serially tasks. In other words, he will get super focused on a station in the assembly line in Austin and how it can be done better. And then he'll get super focused on the importance of allowing people to upload video on X or making it into a payments platform. But I think that he has really good people around him, Tesla, SpaceX, and I hope now even X, the platform that was Twitter, so that he can focus on a particular product issue or manufacturing issue and let others deal with different things. But his work ethic is indeed all in and hardcore. Walter, when you've spoken about this in other places, you've also mentioned that he quote unquote batch processes. Can you kind of explain a little bit more for the audience here what that means? Sure. And I think I should give Siobhan Zillis and others credit for having said that, I mean, explained that to me because it's just really a metaphor. All of you understand computers pretty well. So you know what parallel processing is and you know how many things can be done in that way. But sometimes Musk goes into a thought zone where he becomes very quiet and people like me know, I hope very well, not to destroy the silence. And he's processing something. And he sometimes does it one at a time. Like people will be pushed back on you know, should you be able to block people on Twitter a certain way or push back on whether the leaked engine should be the focus or whether they have to, and you'll wait and you'll see that he doesn't make a snap judgment right away. Sometimes he says, my brain is, is hurting and it's his way of saying, I'm going to have to process this later. And, but he'll go into a zone where he's very quiet and he'll process something and then maybe move on and process something else. And then decisions will be made. I was in Boca Chica down at the south tip of Texas at Starbase at one point, And there was a question about how long it would take to stack Starship and whether it needed to be done with all 33 engines on the booster. Yeah, pretty big question, but still a technical one. And we're at a meeting. And I think Gwen Shotwell was down there. A lot of other people down. There's like 20 people in the meeting. And he just let it go on for two hours, the meeting, and he didn't make any real decision. 
And some people are getting impatient, which is like, all right, what do you want us to do? How many engines, when stacking? And he just didn't say anything. And finally, at the end, people drifted away and Musk sat there alone, just thinking. And I went with Mark Jimcosa afterwards. Everybody's in the parking lot. And he said, let's break into the bar. You'll see it in the book. It's called the Tiki Bar Break-In Chapter. And they break into the bar and they start pulling out the McClellans and the Woodford Reserve and uh, Buffalo Trace Bourbon. And it's about three in the morning. I think the timestamp is in the book itself. Suddenly I get a text and he says, it can be stacked this way at this time. And we don't need this many on B7, meaning booster seven. And I had to show my phone to Jim Cosa or Jake McKenzie and say, what does he mean by that? And then they said, well, he's processed it and he wants us to have it stacked by midnight tonight without all the rocket, without all the engines on the booster. I know I'm getting boring with this long story, but it's his way of having taken a couple of hours on his own, processed everything, and then just sending out, here's the answer of what we're going to do. And he turned out to be right. All right. Let's go Maley, then Mel, and then David. Hey, thank you so much. Like others, I, I have two questions, so I'll try to be quick. Walter, I love your writing style. I know at the end you said that Elon didn't have any input before you know the book was launched that he didn't read it before you released it and that he didn't wasn't able to make any edits or anything like that did you get any feedback from him after you launched your book did he read it did he say anything no he jokingly said on this platform that i mean he's made some comments about parts of the book all of which seem to be rather favorable he says that's accurate but this or something and then he joked on the platform that he hadn't read the whole book because Walter told me not to, which I think may be true in the sense that I kind of said, I'm going to do this book. You got to give me all this access, but I don't want you to try to control it. And I figured don't read it right beforehand because who knows, you might not like something, but I think it's fair. And I think he thinks it's fair. He just hasn't given me, you know, big old feedback on it. The, the fact that it's pinned to the top of his stream probably says a lot too, right? What's that? The fact that he has your book pinned to the top of his X stream probably says a lot. Too. Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess it doesn't have an insult there, does it? Definitely doesn't have an insult. Okay. Well, then, then, you know, I think he's a very open, very self-aware, uh, very transparent person. And I think he knows that I wasn't going to get everything right, but that my mistakes would be honest ones and I'd correct them if I made mistakes. And I think he's used to people who twist the truth a bit in order to form an argument. And I think he felt that I came in without an agenda other than to tell the story. I love that. So I have a question for you. You know, as a reader, reading from the beginning of SpaceX when rockets are blowing up and it's not working and he's on his last rocket before he goes broke, all the way up to these like incredible launches like Freedom, you know, launching four humans to the International Space Station and a rocket. As a reader, it was awesome to read. I've never seen a rocket launch in person. What was it like for you to see these rockets live launching? I, I can't even imagine. I'll tell you what I think is a sweet story. I hope I'm not. My daughter loves rockets and she is, lives with an, uh, a boyfriend who is an engineer at Google and they just love SpaceX and they love rockets. And 
I went down maybe six, eight months ago, Kiko Donchez, who you all know, who runs the Cape Canaveral operations, technical operations for SpaceX and for Elon. And I said, I want to go down to see this particular launch they were doing. And can I bring my daughter and her boyfriend? You know, they're in the, the early 30s. And he said, wow, sure. And it was so exciting, not just to watch the rocket launch, but to see the thrill of being up close. We were on, you know, right on a pickup truck, right? As close to the launch pad as you can safely get. And with her and her boyfriend to see it, because I think each new generation has got to be inspired that space travel and adventure is part of the human spirit. And as much as I like seeing the rocket, what I like most was seeing it with you know, her and her boyfriend, Nunzio. That's awesome. I love that. What a great story. Thank you for sharing. All right. Let's do Mel, then David, then the limiting factor. Well, hello, Walter. How are you today? Hey, Mel. Hey, it's a beautiful Saturday here in Michigan. Somebody already asked some other question I was going to ask. So being a fan of space flight and everything, I was really taken by the risk that, I guess, I guess the icons of my era being an 80s child are Steve Jobs, Waz, and Elon kind of ironic you wrote Steve Jobs book and now you wrote Elon's book which I love Jobs book my question was you know I kind of confirmed like a lot of things about him like his full fast approach you know in building the rockets and taking risks and blowing things up and how it's unlikely that NASA or Boeing through the government appropriation would take those risks and the private part public partnership and look how far it's got us so I mean that just it blew me away and I have a 16-year-old who's absolutely obsessed with rocketry. Well, that's great. And you know, I do think that we got to raise a new generation that knows how to balance the need for taking risks and also being safe between, you know, having referees and regulators, but also people who challenge each rule. And it is surprising to me that both Elon Musk and SpaceX, that they got a contract to be able to send astronauts to the space station. But so did Boeing, you know, had a cost plus contract for a space launch system. And NASA has not been able to get astronauts into orbit and to the space station since it grounded the shuttle maybe 12 years ago. And Musk has taken risks, which is a problem. Rockets have blown up. I was there when Starship got up to three yeah. minutes and then blew up. Yeah, and we have to balance it. He talks to me a lot in the book about how he respects it, and even the National Highway Transportation Safety Board, because we need regulators, but we also need people who push back on regulators. So thank you for your question. Oh, no, thank you. And, and I, the next generation, and I hope my son will be one of those next explorers. So thanks for taking my question. Thank you very much. Awesome. Let's do David, limiting factor, and then Brian. And then we'll do a death match between Brian and that and figure out who's the more handsome one. I mean, isn't it obvious? Not from your profile pictures. But Hans, thanks for hosting. Uh, Walter, pleasure to meet you. My question is, Elon's tolerance for pain and stress is just clearly exceptionally high. I'm interested to know what insight did you get into how he handles crew dragon missions? You know, because strapping humans onto a rocket and sending them into space is pretty intense, even for Elon. This is no joke. And I'd be quite interested to hear from a perspective of the run-up to launch, any interactions with the astronauts, and then safety. Safety critical. Good question, Todd. Um, and yes, you're right. It is different. And whether he's shooting off the first three Falcon 1s or shooting up the first Starship, 
he'll take some risks and there'll be some debris that falls in the wake. But when there's a run up to a human mission, I've been on those calls and he goes at great length for exactly what is the risk. And he says the same thing every time, which is if anybody has any qualms or anybody knows of a risk that's being taken that we shouldn't take. If anybody has any reason to believe uh, that we need to delay this mission or change something, you better speak up, please speak up. And he, of course, whether it be Jarek Eisenman or any of the astronauts he sent up, he'll go there and he'll meet and he'll meet with their families and he knows the burden he has. And yeah, there's always a risk. You know, the shuttle blew up. There's, you know, been risks in the Apollo program even. But he has tried very hard when it comes to humans. He knows the difference between taking risks that could pay off because you'll learn something from an explosion and not taking risks because there's a human life involved. Liberty Factor, Brian, and then Yana. Yeah. So Walter, first off, I just finished the book about an hour ago. I really appreciated the way that you kept yourself out of it as much as possible. And it was a, a well-balanced book. So especially in a figure that's as controversial as Elon. Yeah, it made it that much better to have it so well-balanced. Now, one of the parts of the book that caught my eye last night was there was a part in the book where Kimball tried to get Elon to like address or exercise his demons by using ayahuasca. And Elon gave us some excuses about that, but it also got me to thinking. One of the major books of the theme is the tight relationship between Elon's demons and getting things done. Do you think that's why he chooses not to confront those demons? Do you think he uses that kind of as like a fuel? He uses it as a fuel, but I'm not sure that's why he doesn't want to confront the demons. Musk sometimes doesn't like confronting things, whether it's problems in his relationships or going to psychoanalysis. It's just not something he does. I think he realizes that the demons and this ability to know pain and almost embrace risk is what gets things done. But as he said about the Ayuska ceremony, he said, yeah, there are layers buried in concrete, and I'm not sure I want to go there. Thanks. I, I did have a, a couple more questions, if that's all right, Farzad. Yeah, if you can um, want more, we do have a full panel, but yeah, go for it. Okay. But the thing that caught me at the very beginning of the book was the stories about the Veld school. Those seemed absolutely insane. Were you able to like talk to other people and get their experiences? Did anybody else have that same experience? Yeah, I actually, I mean, Kimball gave me a lot on that, but I also read, you know, diaries and other things that I was able to find of people. I hadn't heard much about these survival camps. But I had to do some research on them. Thanks. I know we got a lot more people and it's been an hour and I'd love to stay longer, but, and I will stay longer, but I'll try to make my answers quicker. Sorry. No, you're good. You're absolutely good. I'll have the floor of the discussion. I, I think, yeah, for those folks that are asking questions, let's try to keep it to one question, maybe a, a brief follow-up, but yeah, let's, let's keep the flow going. I think the questions have been great so far and the answers have been awesome. Let's do Brian, then Yana, and then Alex. My question should have a short answer, I think. So obviously you spent, I think, three years, you said, kind of shadowing Musk, but also spending time talking to his father, his mother, his family members. How do you know or have an estimate of how many hours you spent 
I, I guess, talking to Musk, shadowing Musk and all these other individuals around Musk? Oh, you know, two years, maybe a week per month, sometimes 12, 14 hours a day. I haven't really done the math. It was about the most interesting thing I've ever done in my life. So thanks. Thank you. I, I can imagine. Eric, let's do you. then Alex and then Samantha. Thank you for that, for letting me speak. And uh, thank you guys uh, and Walter, you know, it's been a great discussion. So I have three and a half questions. Well, three questions. I don't know whether I'm allowed to ask three questions. I have more questions, but let's I don't know, do maybe. the first one and we'll try to circle back to you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe you covered this question. So the, the first question is the psychologist that I'm interested in. So who approached who and why? So you decided to. Well, I was thinking of doing a books on other tech leaders and I wanted to know who was the most impactful at our time. And that's when it really did seem clear to me that there are great tech leaders out there and who've made wonderful impacts, made wonderful companies. But he was taking us to space and into the era of electric vehicles and artificial intelligence. And so Antonio Gracias, who's a friend of mine, I've known him for many years. He's on the board of the Aspen Institute, but also is a very close friend of Elon Musk and has been on the board of Tesla and, you know, been an early investor with SpaceX. He put us together. I'd met Elon a few times, usually at panels, but we had a good hour and a half conversation, myself and Elon, that Antonio Gracias facilitated, I mean, helped put, you know, say, y'all should talk to each other. And during that conversation, I said, I want to ride on by your side. I want everything to be open and I want you to make sure you don't try to exercise control. And he said, fine, done. And then he tweeted out, if you're interested in my career, Walter's writing this biography. So that's how it began. Oh, wonderful. And I, well, I believe he trusted you to tell his story, which is fascinating. It's great. I, so I, my thank second. You. Let's, uh, we'll get back to you if we can, but I think Farzad is keeping us moving. Yeah, I think I did question a follow-up. I'm, I'm okay with that. If that's okay with you, Walter. Sure. Absolutely. So the second question would be, Walter, for you. So what fascinated you the most about Elon Musk? I think it was the fact that he goes back to first principles whenever he's trying to make a decision, which is, what does physics say? He says, all rules, all regulations are merely suggestions. What matters is the first principle. So watching him choose how to build rockets and cars and how to do manufacturing, that's not the sexiest part of the book to the tabloid writers. But to me, watching him on the factory line was the most interesting thing. Oh, thank you so much. And you know, we have failed to be able to manufacture as much as we should in the United States. And these help show, you know, that if you want to be innovative, you have to have your designers sitting right next to the assembly line so you get a good feedback loop. Thank you. Yeah, one question, one follow-up, folks. Walter, don't be afraid to dig deep if you'd like. It's, yeah, don't be concerned about how, how long the answers take. I think the insight we're gaining is, is super valuable here. Let's do Alex, then Samantha, then Ed. Thank you, Farzad. Thank you, Walter. Love the book. Well, my question has already been answered, but... So I'll go with another one. Can we get a little exclusive here with all the time that you spend with Elon Musk? Can you give us a personal anecdote that didn't make the book a little exclusive here? Oh, let me think. No, I'm, I mean, 
if it was interesting, I really put it in the book. And the few anecdotes I left out tended to be things that would be so painful, especially, say, to people under the age of 18, that I thought that the enlightenment it might give to the reader did not justify a way that might be hurtful to a more innocent person. You know, we did talk a lot about the assembly line that's going to be done for the new global car. And one of the things he said was, you know, he was obviously going to do it in Mexico and this new plant that they're doing. But he said, I've got to move it to Austin, Texas, because I want the designers of this robo taxi and next generation car to actually be part of designing the assembly line and then every day to be there next to the assembly line watching how it works. So that'll be moved to Austin. Also, you know, there was there were some things when I'd be talking to him on his views on geopolitics. But, you know, I think that he is now talking quite a bit to the officials in Washington, whether it be on use of Starlink or on China policy, whatever. And I think even though he's very impulsive, he realizes he shouldn't do things without consulting with the administration if they want him to sell Starlink to the military, he's going to do so so that they have control over it. Or if he's got some idea, he's going to explain it to them before he does it publicly. Thank you. I was just wondering if you had a personal anecdote of yourself as a, a biographer shadowing Elon Musk, not necessarily something from Elon Musk's life, but what you oh. went through that didn't make the book because the book is not about you. It's about Elon. But yeah. if, if you have one, it'd be fun to share. Well, the most fun I had was living in an Airstream trailer in Boca Chica, the south tip of Texas, near his little house there, right on the block there. And I guess one, and I'd spent so much time with him, I'd finally gotten back to New Orleans. And then suddenly he texts me and says, I've got to talk to you, but we can't do it by phone. You got to come back. And I said, when? He said, the Ides of March. March 15th. I said, oh, should I beware? Thinking of the Shakespeare line. And he said, no, but there are things I need to talk to you about. And it was about, we went to Siobhan Zillis's house in Austin, sat by the pool with Strider and um, their two kids. And they were, he was talking about his compulsion to get into the world of artificial intelligence because he was worried that both Larry Page and Google and by extension, Demis, Hassabin, Deep Minds, as well as Sam Altman and OpenAI, were not taking the safety issue strongly enough. So that was just a fascinating afternoon. Let's Thank do Samantha. Yeah. Awesome. Let's do Samantha, Ed, and then Kay, Ted. Thank you, Alec. Everyone, privileged to be here. I'll get right to it. You've written a lot of books on polymathic type people. And I was just wondering, Walter, if you could share with us the core underlining traits that you've seen throughout everyone that you have written and studied about. I know that in the Leonardo book, at the end of the section, which is actually one of my favorite, I, my little feedback, I'd love it if you did it in all your books, but like learning from Leonardo, where you kind of, you do a synthesis of what makes them great and how one can be like that. And so I'm just wondering if you have anything else to add about underlining traits that we could all learn. Well, from. I think that's a good suggestion. Maybe not do it in every one of my books, but I might do a, a, a book next just called Creativity, Learning from 
Leonardo and Elon Musk and the masters and try to synthesize the rules. One of the things you said was that they were polymaths, meaning they tried to learn everything. And, you know, they were Renaissance men as indeed Leonardo is the uh, exemplar of that. And most of the people I've wrote, written about have been very creative because they tried to learn everything possible you could do about almost anything possible, especially Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci. They love math and music and science and humanities. And so does Elon Musk. I didn't realize that was such an important theme until Steve Jobs talked to me about, we talked about doing a book together. And I said, why would you want to do, have me do the book? And he said, because all of your books are about people who stand at the intersection of the humanities and the sciences, who stand at the intersection of the arts and technology. And if you remember any of the Steve Jobs product launches, he would always end with a slide that had an intersection of two streets, the liberal arts and technology. And he'd say, that's where creativity occurs. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are focused just on science and engineering and math and being coders. But I think people who are truly creative know how to stand at the intersection of the humanities and technologies, which is what Musk does, what Steve Jobs does, what Jennifer Dowden does. And that uh, Leonardo may be the ultimate. That's what that Vitruvian man drawing is all about. The guy doing mm -hmm. jumping jacks in the circle and square. It's about squaring the circle. It's about math. It's about spirituality. It's about how we fit in the cosmos. It's a self-portrait. That's Leonardo himself drawing himself. And it's about the arts and the sciences. So I would say that is a common thread that separates smart people from people who are able to think different, Steve Jobs would say. Yeah, I love that. I mean, interesting things happen at intersections. You're right. And it's actually, I had started a group for Polymass and I'm re, relaunching this fall. It's going to called Renaissance Revival. And it's after this, exactly what you said, this intersection between humanities, arts, and science. And I have one last closing for you. I want to ask you, what changes did you make in your own life because of this intimate sharing of life with Elon? Yeah. First of all, on all my books, I think I end up changing a bit. With Leonardo, I tried to be more observant the way he looked at the way light hit a leaf or the way a mm -hmm. bird's wings move. With Elon Musk, it was a little bit of a, no, that's the inscription that's on the, I think, Oracle of Delphi's ancient wisdom, because there are people like Elon Musk who can be real disruptors and they can be tough and rough managers. And I realized that I ran CNN once and I cared a little bit too much about being popular and having whoever I was talking to be pleased. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I'm never going to be a great disrupt or even a great executive of a company that needs change. And I'm not going to want to be more like Elon Musk, but I'm going to admire the people in the arena who can do that and be understanding when they have some of their rough edges. I also try like Elon Musk to keep a larger picture in mind. In other words, what is the missions here? And for him, the missions are human consciousness, multiplanetary. For me, a mission is telling the story about people 
who get mission-driven things done, and that maybe by telling their stories and doing it in a way that's inspiring, you'll have a next generation of young women who pick up the code breaker and decide to become you know, a biotechnologist. So the next generation of girls and boys who love rockets and pick up the book about Elon Musk and say, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. I don't want to just be a somebody pursuing money or something. Love it. Thank you so much for your responses. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, maybe if we could do five or 10 more minutes, because I believe it or not have, let me see what I have here, a Czech Republic, the Czechoslovakian interview coming up. Absolutely. We'll definitely make sure we we give you another five, 10 minutes. So we'll do, let's finish with Ed K, K10, and we'll do Dr. Noah. We'll call it. Please keep it brief if you can. Yeah. Great to talk to you, Walter. So you've now written biographies on both Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, probably two of the most intriguing entrepreneurs of our time. Which figure did you find the most interesting and which book did you have, I guess, the most fun and entertainment in researching and writing? Well, heck, riding alongside Elon Musk, it doesn't get any better than that. I taught total respect for Steve Jobs, a man of great spiritual beauty and depth and able to connect with the humanities. I love Jennifer Doudna and being in her lab and learning how to edit human genes. And in some ways, both of those were a lot more relaxed than a week spent with Elon Musk. But I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world because I think the excitement, even the drama is something that Musk relish. He loves excitement and drama. And I realized too that even if, as an observer, I can get energized by it. So I, I wouldn't trade this experience for any of the others. So I, I'd assume that you'd say that Elon Musk was more difficult to research than Steve Jobs too. Well, not really, because Elon was so open. Elon just said, hey, I'm going to be transparent. Elon said, I got nothing to hide. So I actually knew 10 times more about Elon Musk than I did about anybody else I've written about maybe a hundred times more at times, just because I spent so much time with him and he was so transparent. Awesome. Thank you. Let's do K10 and then Dr. Nodal. Yeah. Thank you, Walter, for making the time for us today. I'll be quick just because I know you got to go. I love that you've chosen to stand in the intersection of doing a psychoanalysis of Elon Musk. I just want to know, as a historian writing on a living character, how hard was it for you to remove your personal opinion and voice from his biography, though in the midst of being around people and seeing a lot of the interpersonal relationships and hearing their stories? You know, my voice and myself occasionally are in the book. And I asked my wife for help on that. Like, am I inserting myself too much or too little? And in each stage of the way, sometimes I would be at a scene and it'd be like the Heisenberg principle where just by observing it, I became part of the system, if you know what I mean, or affected the system. And that might be at the Tiki bar when he's, they've all broken in and trying to figure out how to deal with Elon wanting to stack Starsh. Or it might be, you know, in the back, back talking to Siobhan about artificial intelligence. And so I put myself in the book, totally. I didn't want to hammer it, you know, look at me. But I wanted to be honest with the reader that here, you know, I was somehow involved in this and here were my thoughts as it was happening, including, for example, when he's reaming out, you know, Andy Krabs, who was in charge of 
the Boca Chica launch pad site when something wasn't going quickly enough. And just me and him and Krebs standing there late on a Friday night. And I'm watching Elon get very mad at this guy. And then afterwards, I talked to Andy to figure out what he's thinking. And I, I have to make it clear I'm there because it's part of the scene. But I don't try to thrust my knee-jerk, hot-take opinions on you. Great book. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. All right. Let's do Dr. Know-It-All, and then uh, we'll let Mr. Walter Thank go. You. I guess I'm last in that case. Uh, first of all, Walter, thank you so much for all of your books, not just this one. AJ brought up something, and, and I think you've mentioned it a few times, but from the outside, at least, it appears that Elon is kind of different from everybody else in a sense of the radical honesty and transparency he tries to, you know, bring forth. And I was just wondering, since you were very close to him for a long time, if you were feeling that from the inside or if that's something that's not as true from the inside out as it is from the outside in, I guess. No, I think if somebody said, what's the most surprising thing? You know, the many answers I could give, things about his multiple mood swings, those type of things. But I guess the biggest surprise of all, and I'll leave you with this, is how open he was, how transparent, how unafraid he was of exposing himself. I talk about the Heisenberg principle and maybe I was affecting things by being there, but sometimes I was surprised how I was not affecting things, that he would be truly who he is, both funny and inspiring, but then also brooding and then also angry. And all of his moods would be there and he would be open about it and talk about it. And there was pretty much nothing that he put off limits that we didn't talk about. and. I don't know that anybody has ever been this transparent since, you know, Dr. Johnson let James Boswell hang around with him the whole time. And I admired that honesty and openness and transparency that Elon showed. And people will say the price you pay for such access is you become more sympathetic. And sometimes I cop a plea and say, well, I'm not sure my sympathy is what's needed. My understanding is, and yeah, I tried by the end of the book to show that I was understanding of him. And I think that's really the important thing is you can make your own judgments about him. You can be one of those people who loves him or hates him. But by the end of the book, you should be a hell of a lot more understanding about him. And I think that's not just about Elon, but at the end of the day, I think we should end each day and get up each morning with a sense of gratitude for the good fortune we have and also a sense of understanding where we say this person may have done this or I don't like the way they did that or I'm not even sure I like the review they wrote. But I try to be like Elon Musk and what I did with Elon Musk, which is to say this world needs us to have fewer hot takes and a little bit more effort to be understanding of people. That's beautiful. I, awesome. I think the Thank awesome. Thank you, John. The, the complexity of, of humans is like what really, that was my biggest takeaway. It doesn't matter how grand or incredible a person looks through whatever lens. It's like when you actually get close, you realize that humans are just a complex mess and we got so much going on. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating look into his life. And I think from your end, Walter, I truly one of the easiest books I've ever read, one of the most engaging books I've ever read, just truly a masterpiece. And I just want to thank you so much for the work you put in. And of course, thanks to Elon for being available for the book, but re really 
thank you so much and really appreciate you making the time of it for us today. Thank you, Farzad. It's an honor to be with all of you and with you in particular. Thanks. And uh, likewise. Bye -bye. Thank you, Walter. Take care, everybody.